0: Hi, it's Tuesday, I guess, late afternoon, and um, I don't have a sponsor for the bio this week, so we'll skip that. Instead, I do have uh, for uh, the podcast for Tefillah, and uh, Mishmah Szymanski asked me to give, I guess you might call it a sort of biography of the Haggadah, Shal Pesach, as best as I know it, and uh, let's see over here, the... Um, how shall we put it? I'll give my take on the origin of this very interesting ceremony. Because as everybody knows, there's no such thing a as a Seder Shal Pesach. All the stuff that the Shulchan Aruch and everybody preoccupies themselves with, Matzah, Mar, Charosa, this, that, and the other. Once upon a time, you know, it wasn't like that. It was different. As you know, you do a carbon and Pesach, eat the Matzah, Mar, however you do it, you know, different opinions, and gamarnu. They didn't have four cups and four sons and all that business. Uh, so, where does it come from? In order to understand this, I would say the following. Uh, we're talking by Ashani at the very beginning, uh, in the time of the early Greek conquest. So, Alexander the Great would died in the early 300s BCE. Remember, BCE, you're going backwards. First comes the year 302, then comes the year 301, then comes the year 300. Just keep that in mind. Now, because we're in B.C. Now, <clears throat> the Chumash, as we all know, was in Hebrew. It wasn't translated into other languages, even though you find, you know, a little thing here or there. They did Shem Lashonis, but not really. And so during the entire period that you and I would call the Ba'is Rishan period, the Jewish Bible was a Jewish document. In the Hebrew language. It wasn't well known among other peoples. Now, we have no, let's put it this way. One of the tinnitus of the Bible critics is there's no mention whatsoever anywhere in the world in Bysshe's recent period. Now, um, then comes the beginning by Shani, and the, the, the Torah is still in Hebrew. And then, as we all know, Not too long after the death of Alexander the Great, 40 years, something like that, in the 280s BC, we think, or maybe a little bit later, in the time of King Ptolemy II, Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the son of one of Alexander's generals, and it was the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. So he was a Greek, he was Macedonian to be more exact. And he wanted to build up uh, the economy and the culture of Egypt to make the center of the world which he succeeded in doing. So again, we're talking about the 280s, 270s, 260s, that kind of thing, BCE. And it was during his time, as far as we know, that the Bible was translated into Greek. There are different versions of how it happened and why it happened, but it doesn't matter. And and it's not even a question of how precise the translation was. doesn't matter. This translation of the Bible into Greek, Septuagint, As it's often called, is a landmark event in history because it opened the Hebrew scriptures to a Gaish audience. Whoever can read Greek can now read the Bible in translation. Again, I don't care about how accurate it is, I'm just saying what was a closed book until then, written by Jews and only read by Jews, was now open. Was it written for the benefit of Jews who couldn't read Hebrew? Well, it doesn't matter. And so, all of a sudden, the Gantzivelt discovered the Jewish narrative, <coughs> including <coughs> the anti-Egyptian story that you and I call the story of the Yitzhak Mishraim. Because when all said and done, Egypt comes out looking stupid, pyro in pajamas in the middle of the night, for a reader 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. In the great Egyptian empire, God says, no Moshe, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no way. Mi HaShem By the time it's over, Pharaoh is on his knees saying, please get out of here. You understand? And to compound it, we have the story of the Kriyasi uh, Yamsuf, which makes the Egyptians look even dumber. Kikelev Shoshol Kiel. Right? So, we got Egypt real bad, and Egypt comes out looking bad. That's how it goes. Egypt comes out looking bad. If you want to get down and dirty, I can imagine how a Greek reading person would read that. I will punish all the gods of Egypt. That's even more of a diss if you're a pagan. Okay. Now, what was the result of this? Anti-Semitism. Until now, the Jews who were in Egypt and in similar Greek-speaking countries, because we're talking about the Hellenistic era, after Alexander the Great, when all the nations of the Middle East who had been conquered by the Macedonians and were either part of the Seleucid Empire or the Ptolemaic Empire, which covered the whole Middle East, were run Hellenistically, run in the Greek language and that sort of thing. So anybody who's educated enough to read it can can read it. And Egypt comes out looking bad. Okay? Egypt comes out looking bad. It is true that it says... You know, losa saeva Gary, Esau, yisal barzo. But for every puzzle like that, I can bring in fifty. Makes Egypt look stupid. You can even go Viter and say, "Look what happened to Paro and Soro. Look what happened to Ashes Potiphar, and Yosef, etc., etc." So it's not a, a narrative. It's not a book that makes Egypt look too good. What was the result of this? The same thing that's going on now with Putin and Zelensky and all this kind of stuff. People rewrite history to make it fit for them. Didn't Zelensky just make a a, a speech the other day Knesset? Oh, you should save... uh, Israel should fight Russia for Ukraine because the Ukrainians rescued the Jews and saved them from Hitler, which is the opposite of what happened. So people rewrite, you know, history. So what happened was that at that time when this narrative came out and was read by intelligent uh, Greek-speaking Egyptians and others, it had a blowback. It was a a bitter reaction. And to be perfectly honest, if you want to know that in history, uh, when the movement of anti-Semitism actually started, historians will usually say it was from the time of, uh, that we're talking about over here. Okay? Now, uh, What was the result? Well, um, let's put it this way. Egyptians started to create their own narrative, counter-narrative. Most famously is Manitho, the Egyptian priest in the time of Ptolemy II. Second, third, Mamash at this time, who was an Egyptian priest, he was an Egyptian priest um how should I put it? Who was engaged in, in the um enterprise of trying to marry together the religion of the Greek conquerors with the native Egyptian religion? So they should both be respectable. Uh, what the Greeks couldn't understand about the Egyptians was how can you worship Bahamas? How can you worship and Remusim? But they did Shrotzim. If you know Egyptian religion, everything was a manifestation of gods, even the pussy ants, even rats, alligators. This was crazy to the Greeks. The Greeks said like this, I can hear that you would portray the god in a human form. Because the human is the highest madraga, And a Greek god or goddess would be an idealized form usually of the human, like a superman or a superwoman. So, at least you say man is the king of the animal world <laughs> totally, and so a god is, is is you know, even beyond that. But how could somebody make a god out of a behemoth or a chaya, which is obviously an inferior kind of creature and they couldn't handle that? On the other hand, when the uh Greeks or Macedonians, to be more exact, came to Greece, time Alexander, he they saw they worshiping. As they say, behem, achaya, of, uh, Oph, and Moslem, you name it. And it was a little weird for them. And the Greek conquerors, Macedonians, kind of looked down upon the Greeks, which was not a healthy situation. And what they ended up doing in the time of Maniso was combining the two. And so you end up with what they call serapis, right? Serapis, which I guess would be... Uh, you know, the, the, the head of, a, of a, uh, what do you call it, the body of a behemoth and the head of a, of a person. So it's a, it's a mixture, you understand? It's a mixture. And that way kind of made some sense to them. Uh, so Manisa was an important religious figure at that time within the world of Egyptian intellectualism. And he wrote a book called Egyptica, Egyptiaca, Egyptiaca, which um, is the main source of the pharaoh histories. It has not survived. Pieces of it have survived, as we'll see. And here he gives what we use generally today, which is this dynasty and that dynasty and which pharaoh was when and whatever. That's how it is. And so, you know, it's claiming the Egyptians' oldest civilization, this pharaoh and that pharaoh, where he got his information from, maybe he got from old things, maybe he made it up. One of the things for Minnesota, he had to deal with the Jewish story, this the story in the Kumish. Obviously, he's not going to go along with our version, and so he created his own version. We don't have his original book, so it's not easy to uh give exact description. Josephus quotes him sort of but blast the hell out of him. So you can't tell for sure whether he's quoting it exactly. Josephus was right, but nevertheless not quoting it exactly. And the result is, we have a basic idea of the Egyptian narrative. And basically, what they said was, the Jews didn't escape Egypt, they were thrown out. They were thrown out because they are a public health menace. They were a public health menace because the Jews are full of sarahs and things like this. They're like typhoid Mary's. And they're bad news and losers and disgusting and dirt, excuse me. And the pharaohs, you know, got rid of them. They should have all died in the desert from thirst. But somehow or other, they survived and made it to Israel. And uh, there's even some other versions that Josephus talks about in his book against Apion that maybe they came back and helped invaders and all kind of stuff like that. In other words, there's an entirely different narrative than you and I are familiar with and it was very anti-semitic and because Manitha wrote in Greek and was a guy writing for Gaian, it really caught on especially among Greek and, and Roman upper class and it became the version that was the PC version of the story of the Jews in Egypt that we're like I said before a bunch of leprosy people, a bunch of ganavim and so forth. Now, um, you can see, best example I always like to bring is if you read the history of Tacitus, one of the great Roman historians. Tacitus was a senator who at the same time was an historian. And he wrote some of the classic ancient uh, uh, histories of Rome and, and the Greeks. He's read till today. And Tacitus would be a Roman senator, therefore he'd be uh, culturally, uh, what's the right word? He looked at the Jews anti-Semitic from the point of view of being a, a senator and a chashu Roman, and they, those kind of guys really didn't like the Jews because the Jews are too uppity. Even the Midrash says Jews consider themselves on par with the Romans. Shnei goyim bevetnech Edom and Yisrael. In other words, the, the Romans are, are a master race and the Jews are a master race. The Romans say, "The heck with that! We know we're a master race. Who are you stupid? Pitchers? Who made you a master race?" That's how it goes many years ago when I was in undergrad school, a million years ago at Hopkins. So uh, I remember we read, I still have the book. I've kept it. Um, readings for a classic course I took. Classics of Roman literature. And he has a passage from Tacitus. And listen closely how an educated Roman and therefore a guy alma, in the time of the Baisheni and afterwards would have regarded the story of the assistance rhyme. Uh, I'm quoting now from Tacitus who says being now about to relate the catastrophe of that celebrated city of Jerusalem it seems fitting I should unfold the particulars of its origin. Now the people's like, "Who talk are the Jews and where they come from?" The Jews we are told escaping from the island of Crete at a time Saturn was driven from his throne by the violence of Jupiter Settled in the extreme parts of Libya. So one theory out there is that the Jews are from Crete, the island of Crete. Now I'll tell you where where that comes from. That's Kaftor. It is true that the Philistines come from Kaftor. It says no even, and that's true archaeologically. And so he's confusing the Philistines because at that time it was called Palestine, with uh, with the Crete. And he's just tricking to the Jews, the name. Is, is, is adduced as proof. Eda does a well-known mountain and creek. And so on and so forth. That's one theory. Some say, another theory, where did Jews come from? That the population overflowing through Egypt in the reign of ISIS was relieved by emigration into the neighboring countries under the conduct of or Jerusalem and Judah. That actually is kind of true. Right? That the population was overflowing throughout Egypt. We say that part of the issue of And at a certain time, it was relieved by immigration into neighboring countries. You know, you, you could hear that. It's like the game of telephone at a party. You say it and then it comes a little bit different than the next telling, and a little bit different than the next telling. Many state, he goes on to say, that they're the progeny of the Ethiopians, who were impelled by fear and detestation to change their abode in the reign of King Cepheus. So that would make us Ethiopians, this would be your black Jews. There are those who report that they're a heterogeneous brand from Assyria, a people being destitute of a country, made themselves masters of a portion of Egypt, and subsequently settled in their cities of their own in the Hebrew territories and the parts bordering on Syria. That one's pretty close to the truth. Arami, Elvi, Elvi. We are a heterogeneous band from Assyria. Others, ascribing to the Jews an illustrious origin, meaning a Greek one, say the Solomon from Yushalayim, a nation celebrated in the poetry of Homer, called the city Jerusalem from their own name. So here's Tacitus, a Roman senator, and he's just collecting the different rumors and theories he hears at parties about who are the Jews. You know, say, what's with these Jews? Very many authors agree in recording that pestilential disease, known as magepha, which disfigured the body in a loathsome manner. We say it is about the kingdom, don't we, you see? Spreading over Egypt, Bacchus is the king at that time, repairing to the oracle of Jupiter Haman, in quest of remedy. So, it's a twisted Roman sentence. <clears throat> there was a pestilence, Right? Which we say, Dever, you know. And it disfigured the body. The king of Egypt, the pharaoh, went to the god Jupiter Hamon in request of a remedy and was directed to purify his kingdom and exterminate that race of men as being detested by the gods. So, in other words, the gods told the pharaoh to round up all the Jews in Egypt, all of whom were full of disease, and kick them out of the country. Exterminate them. How? Throw them in the desert and let them drop dead there. A mass of people thus searched out and collected together. Do you see the parallels with the Chumash account? But the the uh, discrepancies and the and the uh, what's the right word? Perversions. Then a mass of people thus searched out and collected together were in a wild and barren desert, abandoned to their misery, when all the rest bathed in tears, and torpid was despaired. And again, you have this description in the Chumash. Moses, one of the exiles, admonished them not to look for aid from God's or man, being deserted by both, but to trust themselves to him as a heaven-commissioned guide, by whose aid they were already warded off the miseries that beset them. So this Moses had saved them in some way, he says, earlier, and the result was that they are going to listen to him in the desert. Okay, they're going to follow him. They agreed. And commenced a venturous journey, not knowing whither they went. Well, that's true. But nothing distressed them so much as the of water. Well, you certainly have that in the rubbish. And there they are, laid, stretched throughout the plains, ready to die. When a herd of wild asses, returning from pastures, went up to a rock shaded with a grove, Moses followed them there, and forming his conjecture by the herbage that grew on the ground, opened copious springs of water. This would be their twisted version of the um, the air and all that. This was a relief. And pursuing their journey for six days without intermission, on the seventh day, it only took them seven days to get to Canaan. Having expelled the natives, they took possession of a country which they built their city and dedicated their temple. So (laughs) they crossed the desert in six days, and on the seventh day, they wiped out Canaan, set up the city of Jerusalem and so forth. So you see how baloney is. In order to bind the people to him for time to come, Moses prescribed for them a new form of worship, which is true, and opposed to those of all the world besides. is all Tacitus. What is held sacred by the Romans with the Jews is profane, and what in other nations is unlawful and impure with the Jews are permitted. The figure of the animal, through whose guidance they slaked their thirst and were enabled to terminate their wanderings, is consecrated in the sanctuary of their temp- temple. So this was the widespread belief by Greeks and Romans that in the Kodesh of Kedushim, there's a statue of a golden donkey or an ass with a boy riding it, an old thing made out of solid gold. While in contemporary of Juvenile Hamun, they sacrifice a ram. Well, that's kind of true. The, go- the ox, which is worshipped in Egypt for the god Apis, is slain as a victim by the Jews. They abstained from the flesh of swine. Now, Roman couldn't figure that one out. What's wrong with Chazer? Because of the recollection of the loathsome affliction to which they formerly suffered from leprosy, to which that animal is subject. So this week is Parshat and Mitzorah, as we all know. Next week, Mitzorah. And this would be their way of of interpreting the Mitzorah narrative. The famine with which they were for a long time distressed is still commemorated by frequent fastings. So he had Tainasim in his time. And the Jewish bread made without leaven is a standing evidence of their seizure of corn, which means when they left Egypt, they stole corn. We say they they borrowed their uh, you know goodies, but, you know, the Kessev and Zav and all that, but they say they stole, seized, seized the corn. They say that they institute a rest on the seventh day because that brought them rest from their toils. That's the other version of the Ten Commandments, Shamar. But afterwards, I love this, charmed with the pleasures of idleness, the seventh year also was devoted to sloth. That's how Rome tries to deal with Shemitah. Others allege this is an honor rendered to Saturn, either because the religious institutes were handed by the Idians, who were expelled with Saturn, or else, uh, well, that's not important. These rituals and ceremonies, howsoever introduced, have the support of antiquity. In other words, the ones I mentioned so far are old. There are other institutions which have been extensively adopted. There you have a reference to the fact that I've said many times that there was a um, Judaism with a missionary religion, and a lot of people joined up whole or part. There are other institutions which have been extensively adopted are tainted with execrable knavery. Notice their they're, they're, they're loathsome. For the scum and refuse of all the other nations, renouncing the religion of their country, were in the habit of bringing gifts and offerings to Jerusalem, hence the wealth and grandeur of the state. And because faith is inviolably observed and compassion shown to each other, while the bitterest animosity is harbored against all others. They eat and lodge with each other only, and although a people of unbridled lust, they admit no intercourse with women from other nations. Among them no restraints are imposed, that they may be known by a distinctive mark they have established the practice of circumcision. All who embrace their faith must submit to the same operation. Uh, I could go on a little bit more. I, yeah, I've I made enough uh, of my point enough. Which is, here's Tacitus, who was an educated guy for his time, and he's repeating what he hears people say: who the Jews are, where they come from, especially the Menisco version, which he put out in his Egyptiaca of the story of the was of which was that the Jews were um, bad news. They were uh, naturally dirty and things like that. And the result is that, you know, it was necessary for public health. Like a corona, you understand? Necessary for the public health to uh, get rid of them out of the country. You see? Get rid of them out of the country. And this guy, Moses, somehow or other, found water in the desert and so on and so forth. There is more to, I just told you klishlishy. Cliche, we don't exactly have, or klishy, I should say, in terms of Manetho itself. However, those who are interested in pursuing this will get a hold of Josephus' third book. Flavius Josephus wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, which was all about the, the story of the Chumash, pretty much, and the Jewish history down to his time. That's our, you know, the famous book. He wrote another book called The Jewish War, which is about the war of Titus in great detail. But he wrote a third book, in which he comes out as a Yiddish, Yiddish of a certain type. And that is, he is attacking precisely Manitho and the other Greek and other authors, like Appian, who are writing books telling the history of the Jewish people from an anti-Semitic point of view. Notice, they're lying. And one of the things he does, and he goes in great detail, it would take me too long to, to detail it, is... He goes after the Manetho and these other guys who he says are a bunch of liars and and Macalarius, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and he read the book. And his book, Josephus' book, has been preserved. And I don't know what it is lately, but they always used to say that most of what you know about Manetho was from Josephus's quotations. And indeed, he says that the Jews were led by a renegade um, Egyptian priest who turned on the Egyptian people, okay, and organized the slaves, like for a revolt or something like that, and um, killed a lot of Egyptians, and, you know, did all kind of terrible things to them. As he puts it, people came but overthrew their cities, burned their temples, slew their horsemen, and abstained from no sort of wickedness or barbarity. As for the priest who settled their policy and the laws, he was by birth of Heliolopolis, you knows he's born in the capital of Egypt, his name was Osirsif from Osiris, the god, but later he changed his name and called himself Moses. So this is the legend, the famous story which people believe that Moses was a renegade Egyptian priest. Well, I mean, that's not wrong. Do you get what I'm saying? In other words, even by us, Moshe Rabbeinu, you you could, if you want to, describe Moshe Rabbeinu as a renegade Egyptian priest. I know the story that he's from uh, Amram and Yochebe and I, but you get what I'm saying. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He was the prince of Egypt, it says, et hoish," et cetera. And so we have the telephone game in which people are saying over things and then retelling it a little bit and touching it up as they tell it. The bottom line is that you didn't leave Egypt against the will of the Pharaohs, but you were kicked out. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't resign, but you were fired. And you did so because you are disgusting. And he makes mention of the Pharaoh shecting the babies and and taking a bath in their blood he talks about those things okay this was the the, the non-jewish narrative. you may be sure that the Jews lived in Egypt a place like this who were somewhat assimilated into the Hellenistic culture just read Philo who was a from Jew or people like that they knew all this stuff and Lee B'erly there are probably a lot of young Jews started to have doubts about where they come from. After all, they lived in Egypt. There's a big push to become Egyptianized. I mean, the Jews living in Alexandria and places like that. And go along with the Egyptian narrative and become an uh, assimilated Jew, intermarried perhaps, and things like that. Okay? Uh, I'll say it again. There was a Jewish community, an important one. It was thoroughly Hellenized. I didn't say they weren't from they were observed the mitzvahs, but was thoroughly Hellenized. And they did weird things like have their own basic mitzvahs, as, as you know. Okay. So, this being the case, when Passover came around, it was a highly controversial business. Because the Goyim and the best scientists and historians of the day, like Menetho and people like that, had their version of the story in which the Carm Pesach, all the rest of it, didn't happen. The Jews had their version of the story. In order to hammer home the Jewish version of the story, at least for your own family, for your own kids, the Jews evolved. I believe first in Egypt, then it spread uh, what you and I call the beginnings of the Seder Shal Pesach, which is you don't simply do the Carm Pesach. And I want to repeat, right or wrong, they used to do their carbon pesach in the base of in Egypt. You get it? It's a migdash chonye. Now some went to Yerushalayim, but a lot of them did it that way. And so they had a carbon pesach. Forget the halachic stuff from the Talmud Bavli. You know, I know about all that. I'm talking about what people did. Okay, and uh, imagine a family in Egypt or whatever in those kind of places. It comes past overnight. They're going to do a carbon pesach, and they want to tell the Jewish way. You see? So it's not simply the the, the minimum that you, uh, you know, eat the Karm Pesach, Al Matzah, Marm, and so forth. And I remind you, it doesn't say anywhere specifically in the Chumash, that on Passover night you should do Sipri Yitzhi Mishraim. I know that in the Talmudic system we learn from Sukim that way. You get, you get it? But it doesn't say anywhere, you know what I mean, you should eat the Karm Pesach and tell over the story Yitzhi Mishraim. doesn't say those words. Um, uh, and said people did it. There emerged, evolved this custom that you accompany the Karm Pesach with the telling of the story of Mitzrayim, but in a way that would make sense in a Hellenistic culture because the Jews are very Hellenized. So they're going to adopt Hellenistic institutions, but with a definite Jewish twist. And that's where you get what you call the beginnings of the Seder because um, they clearly picked up the... the Greek institution of the Symposium, which is an intellectual dinner, uh, usually characterized by fours. Uh, there's four questions, meaning the last four questions in the course of the meal and people will shoot the bowl and discuss it. If you want to have a little bit of an inkling of this, get a hold of uh, the book from the pseudepigrapha, the, uh, the letter of Aristaeus to Philocrates, which I mentioned here once or twice, and you'll see that the king of Egypt, according to the story, Brings in all the rabbis or Sanhedrin, whatever, from e- from Egypt to to uh, to Egypt. I mean, and they have this big party over several days, and he throws out these philosophy questions, which people can shoot the bull on. Ezehu Asher, Ezehu Sameach. what Ezeuderek Shiver Lohadam, in 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 running a country and being a father. You know, philosophy questions as they had at that time. You see, so a symposium is not just a party where you is like get drunk. And you uh, do all kind of stuff. But it's supposed to be a higher class. And it usually, as I say, four cups revolving around four questions. Right? Now, the Greeks, of course, did it for their way, nothing Jewish. But you already start to see where the Jews are going to pick it up and adopt it and adapt it for their way. Which is going to be a ceremony with four cups. And it's obviously going to involve four questions and other fours as well. Okay? Other fours as well. The only difference is we're going to make it Jewish and not Goyish. We're not going to tell your story of the Caesar. We're not going to discuss over here the Manetho thing. that's what the guy we're doing. We're going to do the Jewish narrative, in which case you're going to sell over the story from the from the Septuagint or from the Chumash, if you can read Hebrew. and you'll say, know fires or something like that, right? doesn't mean that the form we have it in today it was the original. It, the original was the original. we, don't, we can't tell exactly. But what emerged was what evolved out of it. You see? What evolved out of it. And I would even go so far as to say that the main people you're trying to convince are the youth, because they're the ones who are, who are the most susceptible to uh, you know getting swept up with the Egyptian culture, which was very... I'm talking about the Hellenistic Egyptian culture time of the Ptolemies, which was very impressive. And therefore, the fours... Will revolve around four sons. You see, what I'm saying, you know, that kind of thing. The uh, four sons. Maybe the guy originally had four sons. I don't know. Now, uh, of course, that Seder that I'm talking about really had a carbon pesach in it. If you're in Egypt, like I said before, whether or not you did the right thing of shchutikhuts, don't bother me with that. They did what they did. You know what I'm saying? They did what they did. Remember, the Gemara says, "Todasei shummi." He said, heck with it. I'm having a, a carn Pesach, or something that looks like a Karim And they said, Oh, if you were rich and powerful, we would get you. But they didn't get him. So they did some kind of a, uh, in Rome, a faux Seder, meaning in terms of carn. peso. In Egypt, it was even more so. And you see, clearly, the, um, the, the, the adaptation by the Jews of the Greek, but with a Jewish content the Jewish content, because you're using this all to reinforce the story of our narrative and not the Manisa or the Geisha narrative, you see? Now, the Jews being Jews, they did it in such a way that it worked, meaning it evolved over time and it used food as symbols and things like that. Uh, but it worked. Now, it spread. I imagine it originally spread into the diaspora, because that's where all the Greek-speaking Jews were. And you can imagine, if you want to, when the Baishen, Baishen excuse me, is still around, if you go to Greece, to Asia Minor, to those kind of places, it comes to the holiday of Passover, either the people of slept schlepped all the way to Shalim, which is Matovah Manoim, or they did not. If they didn't, you're going to have to have a mock ceremony, and that's the beginnings of what we have, because we don't have a carbon peso. Now, how this worked out exactly in Israel is not so clear. It definitely spilled over into Israel. But, you know, obviously it's going to undergo a certain amount of, of a change and development. One of the things that's going to happen is not going to be in Greek. In Israel, they're still going to speak uh, Hebrew Aramaic. You see what I'm saying? Uh, over the course of time, it spread elsewhere and picked up more Hebrew, and, let me put it this way, over the course of centuries, it underwent further development because, first of all, there's the Talmudic layer, I'll give an example, Rav versus Shmuel, one of them says the Maggit is, you know, the short version, uh, Manashtana, but if you know it a little bit more, you're done, it's over. Uh, who is it, Shmuel, the other one, unless I am backwards. The other one says, no, you have to do which means that one is a short version, and now let's see. The other one is a long historical version, and you end up, and as you know, we darshan the uh, the Vita or something like that, where you know it says, uh. By Yonah uh, by by you know, the, the things that we dash in the second half of the of the Maggid. all of which is from rabbinical literature, which didn't exist at the time of Ptolemy the Philadelphus and the origins of the Septuagint and the beginnings of the Seder. You get what I'm saying? We're quoting from the Sifri. There was no Sifri It came later in Jewish history, and somewhere along the line, the rabbinical teachings of Sifri were appended or used. In what emerged as a seder, uh, one early thing that you can tell early layer, which I always find funny, is "emav tironachar pechas which nobody knows exactly what that means. There are different opinions in the Gemara, other opinions in Yerushalmi. Those who are in the uh, who are Greek uh, specialists of uh, Hellenistic literature, aim of pechas no dancing girls. <laughs> you get it, no wild stuff, because it used to be at a real Greek symposium. The first half is the intellectual side. And then, after we this is the Greeks. And after we finish the intellectual side, now comes the partying baby. And you bring on the, the burlesque girl, the can-can girls, and everybody has a wild and crazy time. Not the Jews. We don't have, we have epic coming on. We don't, we don't do that. You see? So that already shows you. I mean, we can speculate. Did some of the early Jews in Egypt do it in the Chachamim and put their foot down? or probably from day one, that's what I suspect, that people like Philo were in charge, and that's not what we do, and the Passover Seder, and so forth, but they took the form of the Greeks, but they definitely restrained it, changed it, and modified it. They it became a uniquely Jewish ceremony, as we know. Right? All I can tell you is, we won. But we won, not for the reason that you think. Here's a, a joke of history. <clears throat> Today, the Passover Well, the the Old Testament story of the Sismus Triumph is known throughout the world. Okay? It's known throughout the world. Everybody's heard the story of Moses and Pharaoh and Jesus Triumph and all the rest of it. Nobody has heard the story of Tacitus and Menetho until I told you. I mean, it's out there if you're a classicist and you read the old Greek and 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 Roman writings, and if you're familiar with, with Josephus and Manitho, and all that, in spite of what I just said, it never got out there, it never got traction. Well, I'm not exactly right. There came a event in history that made it be totally tractionless. and made the Jewish narrative uh, prevail. What was that? The answer is the rise of Christianity. <laughs> okay? Which is funny, because Christianity rose in the first years. We don't know exactly when... Uh, without getting the history of whether or not there really was a Yashka and all this, but, you know, there's no evidence for that, but whatever, uh, historical evidence. But Christianity definitely emerged in sometime in the 1st century, CE, right? And Christianity actually was a mixture of uh, Judaism on the one hand and uh, uh, Egyptian religious ideas and practices on the other. The idea of the incarnation of the divine, uh, the trinities, uh, these are Egyptian ideas. Isis, Osiris, Ahiris, Horus, uh, the idea of eating gods, which were the enthusiasts, you know, it's a Catholic ceremony, uh, all kind of stuff in there, without going into all details. I don't have to give a class in early Christianity. They them all together in a chalant, that's what we call Christianity. So, half of it may be the Egyptian stuff which was popular in, in the greco roman world at that time. But the other half is Jewish. It's the Old Testament, as they call it. So when Christianity arose, it arose around the idea of the Old Testament plus the New Testament. But they were Maccabal the Old Testament. If you're, right, the only thing is, in their way, they will interpret the Old Testament as being a raya to Christianity, to Yashka. So he will be the carbon Pesach, and he will be the blood of the lamb and all that stuff. Alright, let it be. But that means that if you're a Christian now, you have to buy into the Jewish narrative of the Yzismuth Trium. You can give it a Christian twist. You can say it's a it's a foreshadowing of Yashka. You can say all kinds of things like that. But you're telling me the story of what happened in a time of Yetzismuth trium is the story one finds in the Bible. What about Manetho? And what about Ossrisif? And what about the, the plague, uh, you know, referred to in Tassus? Out the window. It became something known only to classicists. Masha and Cain, the, the Jewish version, spread around the world. They know about it in Africa and in India and everywhere. Who hasn't heard of Moses and Pharaoh? It is, by the way, a very good story, very gripping. And just off the top of my head, the Negro slaves that were in America, as they used to call them in the 1800s, when they were slaves, look to the story of Moses and Pharaoh for their inspiration to let, help them survive the terrible slavery that they under, uh, underwent in the South. You know, there are a lot of Negro spirituals, as they used to call them, Moses and you know, the Promised Land and children of Israel. They called themselves children of Israel. In other words, it's a powerful story in and of itself. How could they cock the people want to identify with it? Nobody wants to identify. There's nothing like that kind of power to the narrative of of Tacitus, of Manitho, and of the others and so it's ironic egypt is the country that contributed a lot to the rise of early christianity but in doing so they sowed the seeds of their own cultural destruction because that means they had to be macabre the old testament as part of the overall christian thing you see when that happened and by the way in the new testament if he has what we call last supper it's a seder you see so the concept of a passover seder commemorating the Jesus rhyme is embedded in the heart of the New Testament, of the Jesus myth, you see? So, it's kind of funny to me, because as a as result of something which was not Jewish, it's kind of anti-Jewish, the early Christian, very anti-Jewish, uh, the Jewish narrative emerged as the universal narrative, and the Egyptian one failed. So, was it the power of the Seder, per se, that did this? Oh, no. Um... But the Seder turned out to be a very powerful institution because it's still here today. Again, obviously, if there are Talmudic references in it, those parts of the Seder were added later on in post-Talmudic times. If there are passages, as we all know, from the the Sifri, same thing. Okay? Uh, If there are differences here and there between the Mishneh version slightly, and the other version, obviously, adjustments had to be made when there's no more carbon Pesach. You know, Masa Zushan of oakland and all that. Um, and there's a lot of lambdas, how Jewish uh, medieval and post-medieval scholars imagine because they weren't there. What the Seder was different in the time of the, when they had a carbon peso versus what it is now. it seems has a lot of very interesting to say. If you want to pursue that in his got I always found it interesting. Um, But historically, the Seder emerged as this anti-Egyptian narrative. As I said before, I wouldn't say that the Seder killed the Egyptian narrative. Maybe it did, but I wasn't there. But the rise of Christianity certainly did. Now, you could say once that happened, the Jews didn't need a Seder anymore. It turned into such a Jewish thing. And they, what's the right word? Subsumed the original Greek form, the four cups, all the rest of it. Nobody remembered, nobody gave any chashibis to the fact that you're copying a a, a Greek uh, form of, of banquet. doesn't matter. It became so Jewish that um became embraced by all the Jews. It became a central part of the Mishnah. Judaism, as we know, because the form of the Mishnah, the, the, the Haggadah is found, the Magad is found in the, in the Mishnah, which is pretty doggone old. Right? So, um, that, as far as I understand is the origin and structure of the Seder. Uh, I didn't go so much into the structure of it now, uh, and I've gone over time, but I wanted to give the origins of it, and maybe next time we'll talk about how the, the structure seems to have formed uh, as best as we can. Once again, I want to thank Mr. Spansky for, uh, for backing this, for sponsoring this. And with that, I wish you a, uh, a good night.